The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Is it loud enough? And um, thank you for being here. Uh, to speak personally for myself, I find it really wonderful to meditate together in a group. It's a different kind of uh, <clears throat> it's a different I, I don't know exactly the right word to use, but uh, a different kind of grounding, a different kind of kind of subtleness that when the group of people sit together. And of course, that can be quite wonderful for sometimes. And it could also be difficult because it also highlights maybe how restless the mind is or how much, you know, impatience there might be. And, you know, ordinarily we wouldn't see that so clearly because we might um, just get up and turn the TV on or do something to distract us, go eat or something. And but here, kind of like maybe because you're with other people, there's a little bit more care to keep the container, to keep the stay within it, and then it gets clear. Oh, I'm really impatient, or why this mind, mind of mine is out of control. I can't wait until this is over. (laughs) You know, surely they they must have slept through the bell. (laughs) And so we get to see what the mind does. You know, and and that it's a really one of the gifts of meditation is to see ourselves clearly, both at what is wonderful, but also what is challenging for us, so we can take really see it honestly and clearly, and find a way to work through it. And um, the topic I want to talk today about today is the imagination, and uh, in our the way I was kind of brought up in Buddhism, first in Zen and also in Vipassana, we were kind of like the anti-imagination people. Because imagination, we're, we're like the just seeing things as they are people. Like just see things as they are directly, the direct experience of what is. And imagination is a way of uh, losing touch with how things are directly. It's like superimposing some ideas a projection of some fantasy or something on a situation that distorts it in some way. And at least that's, that's the way that I was kind of, I came into this tradition. And, uh, and it, I, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for how much it pulled the rug from underneath or clarified how much fantasy I lived in, which was plenty, and how much I projected artificially, you know, constructs on top of the others, the world, uh, and also on top of myself. There's so many ways in which I imagined who I was or imagined who I shouldn't be or measured myself against some imaginary idea of what a person's going to be. And so the imagination played a big role in having this, this kind of practice that constantly pointed that out, that don't go there, don't go there, was actually very helpful for me. But it also uh, limits our full humanity that uh, imagination is an important and, uh, part of human life. It's so important that 
it's probably unimaginable without it. Uh, I think we're always imagining somehow, even if you're, um, you know, you go out for a walk on a cloudy day and you imagine what it would be like if it rained. You know, it might rain, that's kind of imagination. And so you take an umbrella. If you hadn't kind of that kind of idea of imagination, maybe you, you wouldn't have gotten the umbrella or something. I don't know if that was a good example, but uh, it was my attempt. So it turns out that uh, in the teachings of the Buddha, there's a lot of different teachings about imagination. However, uh, the English translators often don't translate it that way. Uh, they, um, one of the words for that I like to translate as imagination, they might translate it as conceives. And conceives, I don't know what imagination that evokes for you, but uh, conceives uh, feels to me a little more conceptual, like you have a concept you create. Uh, what's delightful about conceives is it has this connotation that you're inventing something, you're cre- uh, bringing something into birth, uh, you're conceiving something, maybe it is a fantasy, doesn't really exist. But... Um, um, and then there's also a words that uh, sometimes translated as one regards. You know, regards. What does that mean? Um, and uh, but the 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 Pali word is uh, has the word uh, see or visualize in it, samanupasati. And um, and so, but in the way it's used, if you see it, kind of uh, kind of used like to visualize or imagine. So here's a Buddha's use of imagination. I'll give you an example. And uh, it's supposed to evoke your imagination in a way that makes a point that maybe inspires you, maybe gets you to think about a different, something in a different way, and maybe points to something in yourself or in human nature that, that um, is better, better kind of conveyed through an act of imagination than it is to uh, tell you this in prose, just like matter-of-fact way. So this is this is this is comes from the Buddha. It's uh, I'll paraphrase it, for, but uh, so at least in the time of the Buddha, at least there was a great god in the heavenly realms named Brahma, and Brahma was kind of like the ruler of all the gods of his realm, and he had a great palace majestic in the sky somewhere and he had a majestic you know august throne only person who's supposed to sit on that throne is brahma himself well one day brahma was off in some other parts of the heavenly realms doing what brahma does and there was a little um, ugly little runt of a troll not that they had trolls in ancient India, but uh, the, the, the Indian word is uh, Pali is yakka. Those of you who know Sanskrit, yaksha. So, uh, he came into the palace and came into the royal court or the divine court and jumped up on that throne. And this you don't do. And so the other gods in the court started telling that, you know, you shouldn't be up there. You know, that's only for Brahma. Please get down. And he wouldn't get down. So, 
a common thing to do in something so important as not being adhered to is to get angry. And so the voices went up and the other gods said, you have to get down, you must get down. And, and the more angry they were and the more stern they were and offensive they were, the more that ugly little yaksha got bigger and bigger and more beautiful and more beautiful until he was sitting there huge and big and radiant and beautiful on the throne. Well, this confused the court gods to no end. So they went looking for Brahma and explained what was going on. And Brahma said, I know what's happening. So in a snap of his finger, because he's a god, he returned to his palace. And he stood in front of this, his own throne and he bowed deeply to the yaksha and said, nice to see you. We haven't seen each other for a long time and you're quite beautiful, big and I hope you're comfortable up there and anything I can do for you. And as he kind of treated in that way, kindly, generously, with kind of hospitality at his own place, this yaksha started to shrink and shrink and get smaller and smaller and smaller until finally, poof, he vanished. So then the great god Brahma sat up back on his throne and explained to everyone in the court, this ugly little brunt of a troll um, is an anger-eating troll. So if you come with anger, he'll eat it. It nourishes him and he grows and becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you don't offer anger, then you're not nourishing this challenging thing and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So that's the story. So it's, it's, you know, it's a fable. Maybe it happened back then. But uh, it's the, to tell that story is, uh, evokes the act of imagination for the audience. And I think for some of us, it's kind of evocative. Like, what does this mean? Like, you can imagine it and all that, and imagine these people angry and this person getting bigger. And, and it's kind of a fable for careful what you do with your anger. Because some of the some of who you are, some of the challenging parts of you, uh, if you are angry, something grows in you. And probably none of you have an angry little runt of a troll inside of you. But um, but you know you have something in there. And sometimes anger is self fulfilling. We get angry and we get angry at ourselves, and we feel awful and bad and. And we kind of get more angry and more blame and upset. And so uh, this idea that there's something that thrives in anger, but that diminishes and vanishes in kindness, is, I think, you know, it's a wonderful little story. And it's a story that I've used, uh, I've taught to children. I've been invited to... Um, uh, elementary schools to teach kids to like just introduce kids, say something Buddhist or something and I've told that story <laughs> and um, so um, 
So yeah, that's a kind of a use of imagination, you know, um, harnessing it for the purpose of making some point. And the Buddha is full of things like that. And, uh, and he uses them also for purposes of supporting people's meditation practice. He wanted, he encouraged people to use their imagination, their memory, to recollect things that uh, were inspired them. So there was an inspiration of gladness, of joy, of delight that's associated with meditation practice. And, you know, you don't want to overdo it. If, you know, sometimes you're, you're kind of supposed to be miserable in meditation. Um, but not, you're supposed to make yourself that way. <laughs> but but it's just, we're supposed to kind of really meet ourselves as we are. And some people are experts at running away and trying to avoid and fix and not face what's going on. But can we face really the difficulties and our challenges and unresolved issues? Can we face them with a way that's inspired? That we're glad to look at our impatience? Even though I'm restless and want to bolt from meditation, Wow, is it some way that you I can feel, okay, this is difficult, but I'm inspired, I'm, I want to do this. And so the Buddha uh, encouraged people to call on their imagination for that purpose. So, for example, to imagine um, your own virtue. And if you have enough virtue that makes you inspired, oh yeah, you know, I'm basically a good person. I haven't s- killed anyone lately and I haven't robbed any banks lately. You know, it's pretty good. Unfortunately for this world, it's pretty good because, you know, so much bad stuff happens. And, um, and so, um, or think about someone else's virtue that you know, that you really inspires you. That's, uh, think about something that makes you happy. Um, I know that I've sometimes been in meditation and struggled, and then there's been someone else on the retreat who sat so well. You just felt their kind of simple, almost selfless dedication just to be there and practice all the time in a nice way. And Wow, okay, well, if that person can do it, I think I'll stay here. And so I have my eyes closed. Oh, remember that person? Sit there. Okay, keep going. That's an act of the imagination of sorts. And then for oh, so there's a challenge called the five hindrances, the five obstacles for meditation of uh, preoccupation with or addiction to things like sensual desire, ill will, um, uh, freezing or becoming really stiff or closed down, inertia, restlessness, and doubt. And so meditators have to work with this. The Buddha gave one set of, um, of similes to describe uh, what it's like to, um, you know, to have these. Another set of similes for what it's like to not have them. And here he's using the imagination to give people maybe a a palpable, visceral sense, feeling, for what it's like when these aren't here. So we can recognize their absence. So we can kind of look at the little opening in our hearts that kind of show us, well, this is the way, you know, not to be caught by these things. So I'll, I'll, uh, so, um, so freedom from 
addiction, preoccupation with sensual desire, is visualized, and he uses the word visual, visualize here, a person who has paid off a business loan when the business has prospered and who can now support their family. Isn't that nice? So I don't know if any of you have really been struggling under debt. I don't know what sensual desire, addiction to it is like, how it's a debt exactly, but the freedom from that, you know, oh, now I don't have this heaviness, this uh, preoccupation, this concern, this constant nagging that I have to kind of pay the debt back. And uh, freedom, and again, the word freedom is an word that evokes something in the imagination. Uh, Freedom from ill will is visualized as a person who is ill, suffering, terribly sick, with no appetite and weak in body, who recovers and regains their appetite and bodily strength. Some of you have probably been really sick. And uh, finally, when you're well, and the first time you can leave your house, and wow, I'm still weak, but boy, is it good to be in fresh air. And kind of, it's delightful. Finally, we've relieved of ill will. We carried the resentment for years and years. People carry resentment for a lifetime. But then to find it finally lifts, oh, wow, it's like that illness is gone. I hope I have now some immunity. Uh, Freedom from this kind of inertia, stiffness, usually called sloth and torpor, but uh, kind of... um, Resistance uh, is as uh, a person is freed from prison and bondage without any loss to loss to their wealth. Kind of, you know. So when we're stuck in some kind of heavy burden, weighing down kind of mental state, it's kind of like being in prison. So the freedom from prison, freedom from restlessness or agitation, uh, a person who had been a slave, dependent on others and unable to go wherever they wish, becomes a free person who is independent of others and is able to go anywhere. So agitation, something that's not your choice, is kind of forcing you to be do things and be engaged and be busy and involved and and so agitation, you know, it feels like you're a slave of something. And finally, this other thing in you, you're independent of. You're not caught by it. Freedom from doubt is visualized as a person with many possessions and much wealth who manages to travel through a desert to safety with no loss in property. So doubt somehow is like being in the desert, it's a dangerous place. If you're caught in doubt, you don't act, you don't protect things, you don't take care of things, you just don't, don't know what to do, I guess. And um, so to finally be free from this being lost in the desert. So I don't know if those, you know, these are ancient similes, so I don't know if these work for you, but the principle I'm trying to pass on here was the Buddha used acts of imagination and try to evoke that for people. And there's kind of two general types of imagination the Buddha used, or pointed to, the acts of imagination that he used different words to describe, uh, words to describe. Uh, one are the ones that are, I, I like to call, uh, recollective. 
is to recollect something that is from your world that you somehow have a connection to. So it's evoking something you're already familiar with. Hopefully none of you have uh, been a slave or been in prison, but uh, it's part of, unfortunately, part of our wider world. And we've had examples, maybe read about such things, we know about such things exist. So it's recollecting something we've learned about in some ways. The other form of imagination is inventive. And that is, it has not, doesn't really have much to do with the real world, except in terms of fantasy. And, um, and one imagines things. So the recollective one that's used beneficial has a, a many purposes. And I'll offer you one purpose for Dharma practice through another act of imagination. The recollective imagination is to help the heart sing. Does your heart sing? I haven't heard me here. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for something that I think for some of us kind of just feels like there's a, a delight, a joy, a lightness, a kind of freedom of expression from our hearts. What a great thing for the heart to be this way. And so this opening, this kind of delight, so it makes the heart, or make the heart smile. It's also, you know, again, an act of imagination. Um, versus the ones that, uh, feel, that uh, feel like burdens, that feel like having heavy weight on your shoulders, that feels like the world is closing in on you. And the, and the, um, the inventive ones, the ones where we kind of construct some kind of fantasy that is not really part of the real world, um, is where we often get in trouble. So delusions of grandeur, you know, that I'm better than everyone else or better than those people. And um, that uh, I think many people are, one way or others, are you know, easy enough to uh, fall into. And uh, that's, that would be inventive, you know, because it's uh, creating something which doesn't really exist in the real world, in, a, in the real non-human world, uh, in the non-inventive world. And that is, um, it's a comparison with other people. Delusion or grandeur is in contrast to other people. I'm going to save everyone in the world. And, um, and um, that's just an invention of the mind that uh, is usually a burden for other people, too. The, um, um, so, you know, so what are, the, what are the stories, the imagination that we project on ourselves that diminish us? us? So we imagine ourselves as being worse than others. We imagine ourselves to be inadequate. We imagine ourselves to be somehow, um, you know, something or other. It was, it was so bad for me when I was quite young, when I was a member of, like, in, like in, in college, first year or two of college, that the only relief I could get sometimes was uh, to imagine that I was invisible to everybody. And so I'd, I'd go through campus kind of imagining no one could see me. And some, that was an act of imagination that gave me some relief because the alternative was so worse. 
you know, that I was constantly comparing myself as being less than, worse than, terrible, or something. I was somehow wrong. And um, I, didn't have to, I, I didn't have to have a reason to be a wrong person. I was just inherently wrong. So, you know, it was very, relatively simple fantasy to have because it didn't, have, didn't require any proof. And um, so it turns out that this famous teaching that Buddhism has about there is the, 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 the fantasy way in which it's presented... I say that carefully as a fantasy, it's a misunderstanding, is that uh, Buddha teaches there is no self. Have you heard that idea? He uh, actually didn't teach it that way. But what he did teach repeatedly is, he used the word imagine, uh, manyati, that if you, um, um, to imagine what's me, what's myself, and who I really am. That is a problem. Don't imagine yourself as a certain kind of self. Don't imagine yourself as possessing certain qualities and activities. Don't imagine that you are that, uh, you, you know, building yourself up in a particular way. So the, the, one of the main thrusts of these teachings is not to deny the self. It's also not in any kind of way to build the self up, to invent the self uh, with the imagination. Don't imagine it. And we have plenty of help in imagining a self. There's people, you know, in the advertisement industry who are paid a tremendous amount of money to uh, trick us into imagining ourselves one way or the other. Imagining we're inadequate in some ways and would become adequate if we, you know, have a different color lipstick. And, um, and so we're being fed this kind of into the imagination constantly. I think politicians do it. Sometimes the imagination is used to demonize the enemy or demonize people who are the opposition. And they're using our capacity for imagination to construct, to invent the other in a way that's deleterious. And so this thing about imagining a self, imagining the self of others, is such a dangerous thing. The internalized imagination that other people project racism that sometimes is is an imagination that's projected on people. And then some people then internalize it. Some people adopt it. They believe it. On all, both sides of the racism divide. And it, it's an act of imagination. It's an invention of some kind of concept idea that then unfortunately has a tremendous reality in how people treat each other. And so the teachings of around self and non-self has a lot to do with don't imagine a self. And as we learn to notice this inventive way in which the mind has these uh, ideas, fantasies, uh, condemnations, ideas of who I am, what I'm supposed to be, what I am in relationship with other people, who I am that other way other people see me, um, 
uh, as we kind of have fantasies sometimes as compensation for a lot of suffering we have. That, I mean, some of the delusion of grandeur is a compensation. Or delusion, you know, de- maybe not delusions of grandeur, but delusions of fantasies of, you know, um, you know, wonderful things. You know, how often are sexual fantasies about sex and how much is it about some kind of compensation for just feeling inadequate and trying to fantasize some wonderful situation where it's kind of like a utopia or of a connection and with, with someone else. So part of what we do in mindfulness is, in fact, to start becoming sensitive and aware of how this constructive imaginary use of the mind operates. And it might help to appreciate that there are useful ways of using the imagination and there are really harmful ways of using it. And because if it's all if it's just imagination that's kind of pushed away like the way it was when I was a new student, then your part of you is kind of a healthy part of our human functioning is not included in the practice. But maybe there's an appropriate way to use the imagination to bring us to a time and place where we are free of it. To use imagination to inspire us to practice. To use the imagination to feel or sense where the opening is to greater peace and greater subtleness and greater freedom. And we use it only to the extent that it's helpful we don't try to uh, use it as a sledgehammer to break through the door to the other side. We, you know, you know, like desperately trying to do something. We use it to say, "I'm desperate. Now let me imagine that my awareness, my my breathing, is like a soft massage, and I'm going to massage my desperation." I've used. Um, I, I love water. I've been out, you know, I grew up in a culture where we're close to the water, on the water a lot. And um, so the idea of the waves brushing up against the sand beach is such a welcome homecoming for me. So to sit in meditation and imagine the breathing is like waves coming and going up on the sand. And then if I feel, you know, something's really hard for me to be with, then to imagine that's with those waves washing over, allows me to stay present for the difficulty and keep it really simple. It's just a nice way of using imagination helps me to be with difficulty rather than just kind of restless and agitated about it. I also, uh, partly I think because of how much time I spent on the water, um, uh, uh, there's something about water going off into the horizon and then the sky and the space that goes up forever that um, one of the I feel very at sometimes in meditation I'll imagine with my eyes closed that uh, I'm looking out into the deep universe the dark deep universe kind of spaciously going out to know and for me because of my background that is a really comforting image. 
I, don't, I think for some people it wouldn't be that way, but for me it's just like, oh, I f- it actually helps me feel at home in this universe. And um, when I was, even when I was a little kid, like, you know, eight, nine years old and laying in bed, I would kind of, just spontaneously, I would have this sense that I was looking out into the universe and I was home. And, um, and so to this day, occasionally, if I find myself kind of, you know, my mind is a little bit kind of not cooperating and it just doesn't seem like it's a big deal. It's not like I have to go do some deep looking at my mind. Just, okay, it's enough. Let me just kind of look into the universe now with my eyes closed. And then things get peaceful and quiet for me. It's an act of imagination. So how do you use your imagination? I think that probably most of you do. And if you don't realize that, there's a danger that often your imagination is using you in ways that don't support you, that gives you, uh, projects into the future fantasies and ideas of the future that, uh, you know, it's all going to be catastrophes, catastrophe thinking. Uh, Or we use our imagination to reconstruct the past. And I've certainly done that, held some kind of resentment or annoyance towards someone because, you know, I had imagined what really happened, only to find out later when I talked to the person, it it was nothing like I had imagined. (laughs) Nothing. And I had this, this, you know, annoyance, irritation or something, or towards someone that had no basis in reality. Isn't that embarrassing? You know, I said, wow, this mind of mine it has this capacity to, you know, to imagine a past that never was there, but and I live as if it did. Luckily, nowadays, I know to always check. I've learned very well what my mind is able to construct, and I can see it happening now. And this is one of the gifts of meditation, is to really to be able to be present enough to watch thoughts, images, ideas arise in the, in the mind, and track it and see it well enough to understand what it is and not be fooled by it. To put a question mark next to it and say, well, maybe, let's go check it out. Let me ask the person. And, um, you know, when you said the other day we were together, you said, you know, you're pretty lousy. Is that what you said? Or maybe I'd say it better. You know, when we were together last last time, as I left, you said something I couldn't quite hear. You have a little bit of hard of hearing, which is true. <laughs> and um, you know, what did you say? So that's a nice way of saying it, right? Oh, I said you're lovely. <laughs> and so you know, I was living in a fantasy, and what that meant, and story about what you know how they were treating me, and all the different wrongs that's happened to me. So I hope that this talk, I would be nice if it inspired you, uh, but I hope this talk uh, uh, evokes a curiosity and an interest for you in how you live in the world of imagination and how can it be done in a way that supports you and 
in your life and helps you in a, in a healthy, appropriate way. And how is it that the imagination is not helpful? How does it a burden? How does it kind of put you in prison? How does it limit your life? How does, how does it really weigh you down? And for the Buddha, a lot of, one of the kind of um, gathering points for a lot of burden, a lot of suffering, is all the ways that we, all the imagination that's used to construct, to invent a sense of self, an idea of self. And you don't have to be too concerned about this idea that there's not supposed to be any self. But then when you do Dharma practice, you are supposed to be concerned about how we are inventing a self, imagining a self, and become more and more wise about how this works. And then the wonderful spiritual question is, who are you when you're not imagining who you are? Then who are you? Or to say it even more powerful, I think, who are you when you don't answer that question with a thought? Then who? And even better, probably, from a Buddhist point of view, is not who are you, but what is here? What is left here? when you're not imagining. What is here is left when you don't use thoughts to tell you? Because even even this innocent use of who are you might actually limit something powerful. And when you don't let that limit you, then what? What is here? What is What manifests itself? What flows? What comes? So use your imagination well. Thank you. So we have a couple of minutes, and uh, if somebody, anyone wants to ask a question or a comment, and then at, when I finish here, those of you who want to come with me out to the parking lot afterwards, we can have a conversation out there with our masks off and uh, just continue this or something else. But yes, anybody, any, anyone now wants to say anything? When talking about this imagination, um, um, especially for the future, I tend to think of it as planning, right? And I think as long as I don't get attached to the one way of possible future, right? Then I think there's nothing, I don't see anything wrong with it, right? Like, I also can imagine several possible futures and probable futures and unprobable futures. And me, and if I'm not attached to, say, what I thought was probable future, like in your case, yeah. you thought this person going to say this, but they said that. I'm not seeing it as a way of kind of like something wrong I did, and I should stop doing that. And instead, I say, I just shouldn't be attaching myself to this, what I thought was probable future. Yes. But there's nothing wrong with it. I, I don't see like why. Like th- uh, that's why I think seeing things clearly, 
right? I'm not, Im not imagining it. We have limited set of words yeah. here, like English is a kind to, of funny to language. Be, to, be, to be present here and now wisely includes being aware of the future and what might happen, and includes what happened in the past. The present moment here and now doesn't have to exclude a concern for the past and the present. And, um, and that's a wise part of life, to plan ahead, to think ahead, and, and imagine what might happen and, and prepare for contingency plans, bring the umbrella, you know, or something. And, um, you know, my life, I, I, I have a very full life. And so um, I need to take time to think in the future, this is what's going to happen, this is happening, and okay, if I'm going to do them, I better do some things now first and get ready and let's organize things and set up and, and uh, you know, like people like in my career, you know, Dharma teachers like me, uh, we often have to plan two years in advance uh, so everything can be done, you know, everything works and all, coordinated with everybody else so I can show up and tell people to be in the present. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so behind you. So um, I, I have a question regarding uh, contemplative practice in general, um, because in other <clears throat> religions, um, their prayers, it's a form of contempl contemplative practice. But um, in Buddhism, we have meditation, we have different lineage, right, different traditions. But what do, to you is the key difference between this contemplative practice and others? And there's some framework like taking in some sort of um, faith-based practice in other religion. Keep it close to your mouth. Um, is the key difference is whether you you talk about emergence, basically be there and see things emerge, right? Don't limit yourself to one possibility. But there are other um, um, religious people who follow the, you know, who, <laughs> sorry, um, the, the, the key difference to some, some people say that key difference is whether you allow that emergence or uh, that contemplative practice lead you to open-mindedness or you are enforcing your own belief, right, which could be problematic for the world. So I think the broader question is, what's unique about this practice and this contemplative practice versus others? And why is it better? Or, or maybe it's not better. Or yeah, I, yeah. Thank you. I, it's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a reasonable and a good question, but I'm not really qualified to to talk about other people's practices. Uh, you know, and and uh, and I'm certainly not interested in, in talking about it in a way that makes one better than the other. You know, that I think uh, different religions have a whole world system, a whole philosophy or view of view of life and logic that things make sense in their worldview, in their kind of whole thing. And so you ask, what is the purpose? And are you, are you, that purpose that they want to, the, that they're offering, and that worldview that that purpose is within, does that work for me? So in Buddhism, we have a kind of a worldview. We have a purpose within that worldview. And um, it, I don't think it necessarily has to work for everybody else. But, uh, you know, it, you know, so you have to, and then learn, and so if you're interested in this important question you're asking, I think it's for you to answer, really, 
But you have to go and study each one well enough to be able to compare and see, is, is it apples and oranges or is it different kinds of apples? Sorry. And the, the reason I ask this question is I'm trying to deal with, because my fa- my family, my Husband, I'm more it, yeah, leaning no, toward this. My hearing's hard, so I have to really. And the best thing to do if you hold it uh, horizontally, so it's like that, and really oh, close okay. to your mouth. Yeah. So the reason I asked that question is that it's a. Um, it's in my own personal life. I am leaning toward this tradition and this um, practice, but for my family, they're more. They're Christian. They have their Christian belief and. How do I reconcile that, and how do I convince uh-huh. my husband to come do <laughs> my practice? Because yeah. kind of Sunday has to be split <laughs> into two. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, how to reconcile? How to, or is, there's, there's, I imagine there's two things. Is how do you reconcile the, the two practices, but also how do you have harmony with your family? And and your kids, yes, yeah. How do you, how do you how you're in harmony? So this is an important question, and and so there's a different ways of answering your question. Uh, one is at the terms in uh, with the terms that you offered. Another way, which you didn't ask, but which uh, is the orientation of this practice, is um, what's happening in you emotionally deep down. That's the source of this question. And you don't have to answer now, but uh, what happens if you practice with that fear or that distress? And if the fear goes away, how do you answer the question then? Um, and so, uh, but if the fear remains, the answer, the, the 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 rational answer to the question might not really be addressing what's deep down inside. And uh, so. The interest here with our practice is always to go deep. And what's the what's at the depths here, and can we clarify that before we clarify some of the things that are that are you know not quite as deep? Um, so I don't know if that's a satisfying answer for you, but that would be the approach here. And, and then and then you're in a better position to ask answer the question yourself. Okay. So thank you. So. Uh, one announcement, and that is that um, it's been, you know, for uh, at IMC here, the pandemic, in a sense, began as, in, as something that affected us uh, on a Saturday when we were going to have a uh, one-day meditation retreat here. People showed up, and we'd already that evening, not before, decided that we can't beat, we, you know, we're quarantined now, we're, we can't meet. So people showed up, and we sat out outside the, here and talked for a while, and and um, and then we closed. We were closed, and that was the that was it. And I don't think we've had a really a day long here for IMC since then. Anyway, we're having one of the first ones uh, Saturday. So it's you know three years. And um, so Don Neal is teaching a day-long meditation retreat. I think it's on the Seven Factors of Awakening. Is that what it's at, right? There's a flyer. There's flyers out there on the counter. Yeah, look, a beautiful flyer. And uh, what's the time for it? It's from uh, 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 on Saturday, January 28th. 9.30 to 4.30. And uh, again, people are wearing masks, but you're welcome to come. And uh, if you would like to come here and... And um, and then Don's a great teacher, and 
So it is, I think it should be, you know, things were starting to open up and people are more comfortable with all this. And I mean, I suspect that a good number of you are, are comfortable to be here without masks. Um, some of you would never come here without masks. So, but um, uh, so for those of you who are comfortable not wearing masks, I want to thank you for wearing masks and doing it carefully. I think it's a gift and I just I think it helps this kind of environment that we're in. To, uh, to be able to meditate in a way that makes people be able to let go more, deep, more deeply. And so in a few minutes, you can take a chair, a folding chair out there in the parking lot if you want to meet. And because some of us are going to meet out there, maybe partly, if you're at all inclined, it'd be great if you turn to someone next to you and just said hello to them and welcome them. Even if this is your first time, you can welcome them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>